Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. Welcome to the Amanpour Hour. And in the next 60 minutes, we'll take you around the world to ask the tough questions, tackle the big problems, and let history be our guide. So here's where we're headed this week. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver. Ukraine watches the clock run out as military aid stalls in Congress. Former national security official and Russia expert Fiona Hill calls it the winning ticket for Putin. This is the tipping point where the United States and Ukraine and Europe, everybody loses. Then, former COP president Alok Sharma, who cried tears of regret when he failed to wean the world off coal, reacts to the new climate deal out of Dubai. I certainly think that this does spell the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. Also ahead, an Afghan family fights for their teenage daughter's life after Taliban rule drove her, like so many other girls, to total despair. And finally, from the archive, as Vogue magazine turns 131, my conversation with its powerhouse editor, Anna Winter. There's something about sitting with a magazine and luxuriating in it that is, is very special. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. U.S. intelligence revealed this week that Russia has lost a staggering 87% of its active duty ground troops and two-thirds of its tanks since its full-scale invasion of Ukraine began almost two years ago. It is a very heavy toll, but perhaps what's even more significant is that despite all this, Russian President Vladimir Putin seems more emboldened and more upbeat. With Republicans in Congress holding Ukraine's support for ransom over border politics at home, President Biden has warned that Putin is watching and waiting. Quite a prediction. Putin delivered at his first press conference with journalists since launching his war, reassuring Russians that the West's pipeline of aid to Ukraine is indeed sputtering. Today, Ukraine produces almost nothing. They're trying to preserve something, but they produced almost nothing. They get everything, excuse the bad manners, for free. But this freebie may end someday, and apparently it is ending. This week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky came to Washington in a bid to persuade holdouts in Congress that the fate of his nation was also the fate of the free world. So, was Putin right to wait out the West? Looks like it. I turn to the world-renowned Russia expert Fiona Hill for some answers. She knows Putin and how he operates and was a senior national security advisor at the White House. If Russia wins, the U.S. loses. So does democracy and our way of life. Fiona Hill, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Christiane. Great to be with you. So, Fiona Hill, if you were what you were before, uh, an advisor in the national security apparatus to the president, what would you be advising this president now about Ukraine and about fulfilling the pledges? Because the big picture, obviously, is President Biden and his allies 
pledging to defend democracy on the Ukrainian battlefield and, quote, supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. Yeah, look, I mean, we're in the same kind of inflection point and at the same juncture as we were in World War II. Now, you know, if you kind of want to do a counterfactual and think back into history, if uh, Pearl Harbor hadn't happened in 1941 and Japan's attack uh, hadn't brought the United States into the, uh, into the war, what the hell would everybody have done with Great Britain? Uh, would we have left uh, Churchill and uh, the UK out to dry? I mean, that's the kind of question uh, that we're being um, asked right now. Biden gets this, uh, the administration get this, a lot of people in Congress and the Senate, uh, irrespective of political party, get this. Obviously, in Europe, the same uh, thing is happening. But the focus in the United States, as in many other European countries, is really about domestic politics, about their own elections, their own constituencies. And we have to find a way of breaking through that logjam. Because right now, Vladimir Putin thinks that he's got the winning ticket here, the winning edge. And he is already, as we speak, sending out feelers uh, to try to uh, gauge whether the United States and European countries are ready to capitulate, give up Ukraine, and actually push forward on negotiations. He's sending emissaries out. Um, uh, lots of people are getting approached now. Uh, Putin thinks that this is the propitious time for him uh, to basically uh, declare a ceasefire uh, and uh, basically to partition Ukraine. That's the moment that we're in. Okay, so that is really interesting. Uh, that's very interesting information. I hadn't realized that he was seriously, because up until now, we have heard that Putin doesn't want to negotiate. He just thinks time is on his side. But this is fascinating because... Well, I mean, he doesn't actually, in many respects, Christian, want to negotiate. Yeah. What he wants to do is to um, basically lay out the terms of Ukraine's surrender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So negotiation is a bit of a misnomer here. When he says, I'm ready to negotiate, he's, ready, uh, he's basically saying, are you ready to give it up? And we will negotiate those terms, my terms, which is not giving up Ukrainian territory. So we'll have a deterrence problem, you know, across uh, uh, the horizon here. Russia will ma maintain a major military force. It will replenish um, its uh, depleted stocks. And of course, you know, Putin thinks that he has an unlimited supply of manpower when he's pulling people out of jails and, you know, out of remote uh, areas of Russia. So this will be on Russia's terms. That's not a negotiation. That's a capitulation. And precisely, I'm glad you corrected me because I was going to then say he's got some willing, uh, I don't know what to call them, willing believers in the U.S. Congress. Uh, Senator J.D. Vance said that it is time now has. for yeah. Ukraine essentially to give up territory. Well, yes, and it's not just in the US Congress. You know, it's kind of globally at this point. I mean, now that we have this absolute disaster um, in the Middle East, a lot of people are saying, look, we've got to focus, you know, what's happening there. You know, we've already had two years or coming up to two years of this conflict in Ukraine. That's not the main issue anymore. Can I just ask you bluntly, do you think if this continues that Putin could win, Ukraine could lose, and if so, what does that mean for Europe and for the United States? Well, yes, to the first two points, of course. Um, and Putin, you know, a win for Putin doesn't matter how many, you know, men he's lost. Um, I mean, there's more than 300,000 Russian casualties, including people who have uh, died or been seriously injured. Putin doesn't care about that. That's be beside the point. He doesn't care about uh, the fact that he's had to distort his whole economy uh, to a war economy. You know, for now, uh, the Russian economy has adapted and is doing reasonably well over the long term. This is very detrimental to Putin, but he's not thinking about the long term. He thinks over the long term he will win. 
And right now, this is the tipping point where the United States and Ukraine and Europe, everybody loses. And he turns everything to his advantage. Right now, that's what he's thinking. And so what does that do to all of us in the long term? I think that that actually, you know, shows uh, that the West um, is incapable uh, of uh, sticking um, to its ground. And there will be a deterrent effect uh, after this. And I, I want to explain that a moment. Putin will be emboldened. It doesn't mean he's necessarily going to send tanks into the Baltic states tomorrow. It's just that he will now know that the United States and West and, and NATO as well have no sticking power. He will turn around and say, we defeated NATO, not because NATO was directly involved in Ukraine, but because NATO member countries have been involved in supporting Ukraine. He always says, and he said before, when he threatens, he delivers, and the West promises much to partners and never delivers. And it will have a chilling effect on every ally of the United States and the West, Japan, South Korea. I mean, remember, North Korea is also involved in supporting uh, Putin here. So it'll be a win for North Korea and Iran, and it will bleed over into every other arena that we're concerned about at this moment. This will not solve a problem. It will just create a host of other problems. And American and Western leadership uh, will be greatly diminished by this. The entire effort of Europe and the United States has been to weaken Putin through sanctions, through all these things for the last many, many years, particularly since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But we're hearing, and you alluded to it, that the domestic economy is ramping up, that even uh, there's a construction boom, there are rising real estate prices. Mikhail Ziga, who is a uh, exiled writer, writes in the Washington Post, business leaders, officials and ordinary people tell me that the economy has stabilized, defying the Western sanctions that were once expected to have a devastating effect. Putin's regime, they say, looks more stable than at any other time in the past two years. The Soviet Union's Cold War isolation has not repeated itself. Putin's Russia can get many of the supplies it needs from China. So how worrying is that? Well, it's very worrying because, again, this is a short to, to medium term um, perspective. And Mikhail Zigar is absolutely right. I mean, one of the effects of sanctions and sanctioning Russian business people and oligarchs has been to make them bring all of their capital, you know, from outside in Europe and back into Russia or to um, basically put it into the Middle East, UAE, you know, for example. And as Putin would probably say, like the old quip goes over the longer term, we're all dead. He doesn't care about that. He cares about the short to medium term, his own election next year in 2024, which seems like a pretty sure thing to be president again until at least 2036. Uh, so that's what he's playing for. And so Mikhail Zigar is right, uh, and many others are, to call the alarm here. The only way that Putin changes his mind is when he feels pressure from a very large number of actors, and that's not what he feels right now. There's no pressure coming from the Middle East. He's just been in uh, recent weeks in the UAE and Saudi Arabia. He doesn't feel any pressure from China. He's not feeling any pressure from other players in the world system to end this war. In fact, all the pressure is on the United States and on Europe, not on Russia at all. Putin doesn't get any scrutiny, rather, from his own uh, press. Mm -hmm. Um, he is basically scot-free right now, and that should be something that people should be contemplating. Every time that we step out there in a, such a kind of a critical way about American players, irrespective of our partisan position, we're handing, um, again, another opening to Vladimir Putin to mess about in our domestic politics. We've got Viktor Orban, the uh, Prime Minister of Hungary, messing out in, uh, about in our domestic politics as well. America has now become a playground for other 
interests in ways that we've not seen for a very long time in our political history. This should be a real concern for people thinking about how vulnerable and how fragile US politics and the US political system has become to outside interference. So I would like you to stand by because this brings us to a huge potential extra problem given what he thinks about US and NATO, that is President Trump, if he gets a second term. We'll be back with that question after a break. Welcome back to the program where we continue our conversation with Fiona Hill, the former US advisor on national security and especially on Russia and President Putin about this debacle that is happening right now with the US Congress refusing to send Ukraine the aid it desperately needs. So Fiona Hill, we were talking about all the things that co could go wrong, not just for Ukraine, but for the United States. And I asked you, what would happen to this war if Donald Trump were to be re-elected? So I want to play a soundbite of what he said about NATO and the alliance. We're not going to protect you any longer. And I remember the head of a country stood up, said, does that mean that if Russia attacks my country, you will not be there? That's right. That's what it means. I will not protect you. So how shocked were you, or is that par for the course, Fiona Hill? He's basically explaining at a speech why he thinks that, you know, the U.S. will not do that. And of course, his aides are saying he might even, if there was a second term, pull the United States out of NATO altogether. Well, this is par for the course. I mean, right from the very beginning um, of his presidency, you know, Trump made it, uh, you know, very clear uh, that he saw uh, NATO as, as really a vehicle for U.S. protection of countries. And if they weren't going to pay their dues, uh, the 2% of uh, their GDP allotted to, to defence and also contributions you know, to NATO more broadly, then he didn't see why the United States uh, should be stepping up uh, because this was just basically a ripoff um, of uh, the United States for protection. But, yeah, but he's but saying, Fiona... What's different about what President Trump... Yeah, but what he's saying is different is that he's willing to pull out of NATO, and he has made that clear. That's not what any other president has said before. Right, right, right. And to abandon the whole principle of Article 5. Let's not forget, the only time Correct. Article 5 has Correct. ever been invoked was on behalf of the United States after 9-11. So that's a fact. I want to ask and, you... And that's, a, that's yep. absolutely right. And that's not something that he would even, you know, acknowledge, in fact, and he doesn't acknowledge. So there's a very serious step here. But the larger point, you know, that Europeans, you know, have to, you know, really think about this stays. And in fact, you know, what I would advise at this moment, given the fact that he has telegraphed this so clearly, is that European countries need to be already thinking about, you know, Plan B and uh, Plan C and how they are going to manage, you know, what could be, you know, an, an extraordinary rupture between the United States and the rest of the transatlantic alliance. He's serious when he says that. But I want to add one more layer on and ask you about what you yourself have written about the other war that has broken out that the U.S. is heavily involved in, of course, the war of Israel and Hamas. You have written... These could be global system-shifting wars, something like World War I and World War II, which reflected and produced major changes in the international order. In a sense, the Hamas attack on Israel was a kind of Pearl Harbor moment. It opened a second front. Yes, I mean, this is uh, obviously an attack um, on Israel, Hamas on October 7th. I just want to, for um, the record, as just uh, a little point of interest, October 7th is Vladimir Putin's birthday. 
this is just coincidental, but it's still, you know, worth uh, noting uh, this, that, um, you know, that when that date is reflected upon, there'll be all kinds of different dimensions uh, on it as well. I mean, it's very close to um, the whole anniversaries of Pearl Harbor in any case, because in many respects, you know, the United States is in jeopardy in three different arenas where many of the same players uh, are very active. And the whole perspective is one of a proxy war against the United States, against the United States as a global and regional hegemon. And we're really getting uh, seeing the United States uh, being uh, put in the spotlight by Russia, by China, obviously North Korea, Iran, uh, and many other countries as really being the cause of all of this turmoil. The United States is getting blamed for what's happening um, in Israel and Gaza just as much as it is um, in Ukraine. And there's now a push uh, by Russia and other countries you know, to uh, isolate the United States. The United States, I would suggest right now, is on the back foot here. And Putin um, is obviously uh, going to take every advantage of this, and so will China. This looks like a world with three major fires, two, you know, in fully combustible in Ukraine and in the Middle East, and one that's, you know, still simmering and smouldering, not simmer in a fire, but smouldering and looking, you know, kind of like it also uh, might be ignited in the Indo-Pacific region as well. And we have to keep an eye on all of these fronts at the same time. The United States global position is really challenged here. Gosh, I was going to ask you, what is the antidote to this? And does the action by Congress uh, simply put the US in more danger? It does put the United States in more danger. I mean, if we want to have any kind of leadership and any role in shaping uh, the system that comes out and instead of Pax Americana, we get Pax Sinica. And this is done on you know, China's terms with, uh, with Russia you know, heavily involved. We'll have a very different world, one in which will be much more difficult for the United States and the Western Alliance uh, to play in. There is a great desire you know, all around the world now for more say in uh, world affairs, uh, for having the United States taken down, uh, not seeing Russia weakened, uh, don't necessarily want to see China as the dominant power, but there's no real desire to see the United States on top. That unipolar moment for the United States is long gone. And this is you know, really uh, what we're seeing playing out here, uh, the last moments of this. And you know, the, the sad fact is it's not being fully recognised here in the United States or elsewhere. It's, again, one of those really pivotal moments. And, you know, if we want to step up, uh, this is the moment to do so. And if we want to then just see how this kind of plays out again, not necessarily to our benefit, then, uh, you know, if we just sort of sit back. Fiona Hill, thank you so much for putting that all out for everybody to hear. Thank you. Thanks, Christiane. Thank you for having me. And the other, even bigger existential struggle of our times, climate change. And for a change, some good news. As COP28 wraps up in Dubai, my conversation with the former COP president, Britain's Alok Sharma. Why he thinks we've reached, quote, the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. For the first time, a climate summit has explicitly called on countries to transition away from fossil fuels. There were sighs of relief, applause, and lots of happy faces as COP28 in Dubai issued its final communique this week. This year has racked up record temperatures, wildfires and floods. So many world leaders and activists are praising the agreement as a turning point. Just take a listen to U.S. climate envoy John Kerry. Now, we have to obviously push, but I'll tell you what's going to make the greatest difference in my judgment. The signal that comes out of here today is that the whole world is going to be moving even harder to try to make this happen. Right after the summit wrapped up, I asked Alok Sharma, who was the UK COP26 president two years ago in Glasgow, to tally up the pluses and the minuses of what transpired in Dubai and to assess humanity's chances of survival now. Alok Sharma, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. At the end of this very, very tense negotiation, I would like to know your verdict. The UN climate chief said, this is a climate lifeline, not the finish line. So vital, but not all that we wanted. Well, uh, Christian, we made significant progress at uh, COP28. And uh, if I just go back to COP26, it was the first time in 26 COPs we got language for the first time on phase down of coal. Uh, here, we went even further. We got language on uh, the, the tra transition away from all uh, fossil fuels. Uh, of course, many of us would have liked uh, language, very clear language on phase out of fossil fuels. Uh, but I certainly think that this does spell the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. Mm -hmm. But I'll just make this one point, which is that whichever COP you talk about, these are just words on a page. And for them to have real meaning, it now needs countries and companies to step forward and deliver with real action. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the proof of the pudding will be if in a year from now we're sitting here and discussing the progress that's been made, or whether, in fact, um, you know, people have just disregarded international commitments that they've made. Give me just a sense of what it's like, because you went through it in Glasgow two years ago, what it's like to look like you're coming against the precipice and then manage to, 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 to you know, claw back at least something. Yeah, well, I mean, the UAE faced uh, a number of question marks going into their COP. Uh, frankly, every presidency faces question marks. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, and I, I said this at the time, is that the UAE, as a petrostate, was in that unique position to bring the oil and gas sector together. And I, I can tell you, it, it's, um, you know, at, at the time, a lot of people said to me, uh, going into the COP uh, discussions, uh, do you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders? And I can tell you, in those final few hours at COP26, I absolutely felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. And there and was I'm, a I'm very sure... famous image of you almost, well, you had tears in your eyes. Well, what was I, going through your mind then? 
We had we had concluded on uh, the, the language uh, that was a compromise. So rather than phase out of coal, we had phase down of coal. The thing that I was most frustrated at was that um, we'd been open, we'd been consistent, we'd been transparent, and yet in the final few hours, it looked a little bit opaque about how that deal had emerged. But nevertheless, it was the first time in 26 COPs we actually got language on fossil fuels on phase down of coal. Secretary of State John Kerry is President Biden's climate czar. And it appears he made some really, he leveraged all his incredible contacts. He spoke directly with the Saudi energy minister, with the Chinese uh, counterpart that he has on this, because the Saudi and OPEC countries were threatening not even to talk about this transition. How important is it for America not just to be at the table, but to really throw its weight behind this? Well, look, I've got to know John Kerry uh, very well over the past few years. Uh, I'm a huge fan of John's. Uh, and uh, he was incredibly helpful uh, at COP26, uh, and I'm sure he will have played a critical role at COP28 as well. But what ultimately matters is what countries do. What does the US do uh, in terms of its policies, its domestic policies? What does the UK do? What does China do? Uh, and this is the critical point for me, is uh, until and unless countries are prepared to act, uh, we will not see the progress that we need. And, you know, one of the things that all of us want to see is to keep alive the prospect of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. Uh, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We need to see much faster progress. The island nations, for instance, were very worried. Uh, we heard them say at one point that this agreement, as good as everybody else thinks it is, is still a death warrant because they see the seas rising and they have nowhere to go. How much... How can, one, how can one mitigate what they are going through? Because clearly, as you say, the final, you know, most important results probably won't be achieved in time to save them. Well, uh, you know, I, I think back to my friend Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, who at COP26 said that a two-degree world is a death sentence uh, for her country. And that is the same for very many uh, uh, climate-vulnerable countries on the front line of, of climate change. Uh, and uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the latest uh, science shows that unless we accelerate action, we are going to blow through that 1.5-degree target. And therefore, what we need to do is to support uh, developing countries, take part in that, that transition, which is so vital. You're a father. You have two children. What keeps you awake at night regarding their future? Well... I, I think a lot about this. And in fact, uh, you know, when I took on the COP role between then and, and now, I think my, my outlook has, has definitely changed. It has affected me. And you do think that this is about what we do, not just for our generation, but for future generation, my, my children's generation, uh, you know, the generations that come afterwards. And so the question that I think has to be asked at every single COP by world leaders is, have we done enough? Are we on the right or the wrong side of history? And frankly, we can't afford to fail future generations. Where are we now, right or wrong side? Well, I think we're making progress, but it is just not fast enough. Alok Sharma, thank you so much indeed. Thank you. And indeed, a year from now, those benchmarks will have to be accounted for. Either they've been met or they haven't. Coming up next on the program, a heartbreaking story. The surging number of desperate Afghan women and girls being driven to suicide under Taliban rule. Welcome back to the program. A heartbreaking consequence of the Taliban's misogynistic grip on Afghanistan since the US abandoned it more than two years ago is the rising number of girls turning to suicide 
out of their despair. Correspondent Anna Corrin introduces us now to 15-year-old Arzo, who was once a carefree and fun-loving teen. Now she's fighting for her life after drinking battery acid to escape her harsh reality. In a small, dimly lit room in the outer suburbs of Karachi, Pakistan, a 15-year-old girl we'll call Arzo lays on a cot. With eyes closed, she slowly inhales. Her skeletal frame rises slightly, an action causing pain and an enormous amount of effort. Don't worry, you'll be fine, says her brother, kissing her hand. We are with you always. Her older siblings, who asked not to be identified for security reasons, smuggled her in from neighbouring Afghanistan five months ago, following a series of events that would irrevocably change the course of their lives. We don't try to force her to remember what happened, he says. But once I asked her and she replied crying that she was tired and had given up all hope. But Azo didn't always feel this way. Seen here in pink, dancing on cell phone footage, the teenager was happy, studious and had big dreams to one day become a doctor. But that all changed in August 2021, when the Taliban retook control of Afghanistan after the US withdrawal following its 20-year war. And one of the first edicts the Taliban enforced was a ban on female secondary education. She would say, I hope we move from this place, explains her sister. I don't want to be here. There is no education. Over the following months, her mood darkened, but nothing that alarmed her family until one day in July this year. She came into the room and I saw her eyes were abnormal, she says. I asked her what had happened and she said she'd drunk acid. I didn't believe her, so I put my fingers in her mouth and she vomited up blood. Arzo's sister says she had drunk battery acid in their home in an attempted suicide. A trend that is spiking amongst teenage girls across Afghanistan, according to health professionals and human rights groups. An Afghan doctor who spoke to us anonymously, fearing retribution from the Taliban, tells CNN he's seen a 50% rise in the number of mental health cases among girls at his clinic who have considered suicide in the past two years. Of these cases, at least 10% have taken their own lives, drinking chemicals, overdosing on pain medication, even consuming rat poison. He believes this is the direct result of the education ban and other draconian restrictions that have been placed on girls. I try to give them hope that education will start again. But I don't see any good future for anyone in this country. Everything is in a very dark situation. From her home in a remote Afghan province, Azo was rushed to a clinic, but doctors said there was nothing they could do. So in a desperate attempt to save her life, her family decided to smuggle her into Pakistan. Azo has since had three operations at a private hospital in Karachi, as doctors try to repair her severely damaged esophagus and stomach, but so far it's not working. Weighing a mere 25 kilograms or 55 pounds, Azo is slowly wasting away. She's fed a nutritional drink and separately juice four times a day via a tube in her stomach. 
but she's not gaining weight, which may jeopardise her next operation, scheduled in a matter of weeks. Adding to the family's worries is Pakistan's recent decision to expel Afghans living illegally in their country. Her siblings fear if they're forced to return to Afghanistan, Arzo will die. I don't cry in front of her, but when I kiss her at night while she's sleeping, I will cry, he says. I'm so worried for her future, her treatment, and if she will be able to survive. A daily anguish for these siblings doing everything they can with what little means they have to keep their sister alive. Anna Corrin, CNN. It is a real tragedy. And despite international pleas and pressure, there is no sign that the Taliban intends to lift its iron grip on women and girls in Afghanistan. Now, if you or anyone you know needs help in the United States, you can call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And outside the United States, the International Association for Suicide Prevention has a list of organizations that can help. And we'll be right back with much more of the show right after this. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. It's a happy birthday to Vogue magazine, a titan of global publishing. Its very first issue came out 131 years ago this weekend. Evolving dramatically over the years, it has spent a quarter of its lifespan under the successful and imperious watch of editor-in-chief Anna Winter, a woman whose sunglasses and blunt bob have become almost as iconic as the magazine itself. So now we look back into the archive for a rare interview with Winter. I spoke to her in New York in 2019, just as she was planning for her annual Grand Society event, the Met Gala. And in this excerpt, we speak about Vogue's commitment to women's rights and the focus on first ladies who've taken a stand even through their fashion. Anna Winter, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Um, look, can I just address the elephant in the room? You're wearing your dark glasses. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that I expected you to wear them during the interview, but I know that you do yes. wear them inside. I just want to know because yes. everybody wants well, to know. Well, today I'll be brutally frank as I've been unbelievably ill all week. And plus I just had eye surgery. So um, those are the real reasons I'm wearing them today. Otherwise I would uh, brave you without them. <laughs> but they are, are they, are they, are they an inscrutable protect? Because you wear them in the front row of fashion as well. You yes. wear them sitting next to the they're, queen. They're incredibly useful because um, you avoid people knowing what you're thinking about. They, they help me when I'm feeling a bit tired or sleepy and uh, I don't know, maybe they've just become a crutch and part of who I am, but uh, today I really did need them. Your magazine, the most important fashion Bible in the world, does profile some very, very important women who are in politics. Um, Tell me about that. I mean, you're overtly political in your profiles and in, in what you stand for. 
I think one has to be fair, one has to look at all sides, but I don't think it's a moment not to take a stand. Mm -hmm. I think uh, you can't be everything to everybody. We profile women uh, in the magazine that we believe in the stand that they're taking on issues. We support them in uh, in the fact that we feel that they are leaders, that particularly after the defeat of Secretary Clinton in 2016, that we believe that women should have a leadership position and that we intend to support them. I was really interested to hear that I believe Secretary Clinton, when she was First Lady, was the first First Lady to be on the cover of Vogue? She was. Not even she Jackie was. Kennedy was on the cover no, of Vogue? No, she was photographed many times within the magazine with her husband and her children and I, I think with her, with her sister, iconic pictures, but uh, I think uh, it was a time when um, I felt that the First Lady at that time uh, had behaved in a very brave way. Was this in surviving the slings and arrows of, of her husband's accusations oh, and the slings, impeachment. Slings and arrows of misfortune, yes. So I, we felt it was a time to, you know, to support her and to stand up for women. And it was, uh, we were very honored that she agreed to, to, to uh, be our cover at that time. And uh, we were also very honored, obviously, I think, Mrs. Obama was on the cover three times while, while she was in the White House. I think Mrs. Obama redefined the role of the First Lady. I mean, she was so open to everybody. She made the White House a place for everyone. I mean, and, and she was just so, uh, I think, inspiring to so many women. And obviously, on a, on a very selfish note, speaking as the editor-in-chief of Vogue, she did wonders for fashion. She <laughs> loved fashion. And, uh, and high and low, right? She mixed high and low. She supported designers that one had never heard of. And you know, we had always had a tradition at Vogue to photograph the first ladies when they first came into office. And, and some extraordinary, wonderful women and it was an honor to photograph them but they were always super cautious about what they wanted to wear and the image that they wanted to present nearly always a jacket you know maybe some pearls if you were mrs bush <laughs> but uh, with mrs obama you know she was fearless and i it was just such a a joy for all of us that work in work in fashion vogue is sort of the cultural bible the touchstone and yet online is sort of really obviously way overtaking print. I think we're so fortunate today to have so many different channels on which to speak to our audiences. If you go back to when I was a young girl growing up in Britain and I, I went for my first job and it was you know, considered a great thing if we reached an audience of 90,000 people with a monthly magazine. Now we have, I believe it's 22 million followers on Instagram alone. At, at Vogue US. So we are talking to men, women all over the world in a way that we couldn't possibly have imagined even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But you think the, the magazine will last, will stay? I do, I do. I feel that there is a, an engagement with a, a glossy, rich magazine like Vogue that that experience, you, you it, it isn't the same when you look at something online. I mean, it, it, it peaks in a day, it trends in a day, and it's great the news gets out there and we're so excited to see it, but there's, there's something about sitting with a magazine and luxuriating in it that is, is very special. Anna Winter, thank you very much thank indeed. Thank you for having me. 
The style queen never underdressed or uncoiffed. When we come back, more of your questions and my answers. Ask Amanpour is next. Welcome back. In our complicated world, clarity is more important than ever, which is why I'm taking your questions about the events today that shape tomorrow. Let's find out what's on your mind this week. I wanted to ask you if there was ever a time in your career as a foreign correspondent uh, where you were really scared or frightened. Um, it seems to me that you must get used to these kinds of situations, uh, which can turn bad at a moment's notice. So the answer is an unequivocal yes. There were many, many moments and continue to be where I get very afraid, like all sensible foreign correspondents. The issue is trying to manage the fear in order to do the work of being the eyes and ears for our viewers, for our users, for those who need to know what's going on in the world. Bosnia, where I started, was the first war where journalists were actually targets of those who wanted to shut us up. We were wounded, we were killed, many of our colleagues in huge numbers. And just to remind everybody, according to the CPJ, more than 60 journalists and media workers have been killed in Gaza in just over two months trying to get the story out. That's all we have time for. If you want to ask me a question, scan the QR code on your screen or email askalanpour at cnn.com. And remember to tell us your name and where you're from. Don't forget, you can find all our shows online as podcasts at cnn.com slash podcast and on all other major platforms. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. Thank you for watching and I'll see you all again next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.